welcome to the Wealth and Law podcast. I am Brent Nelson. As per usual, I'm joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing very well. We're doing very well. Good. We're we're keeping it going. Yeah. How's everything with the new puppy? Is house Uh, destroyed yet? No, no. The new puppy has not destroyed the house. She's been really fun. She's getting much more comfortable with us in general, which means she's a little bitier now than she was a week ago. And it's going okay. I think everybody's sort of, like the kids are all like kind of getting the hang of the fact that like puppies bite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and there's not a whole lot you can do about it other than just sort of like try to stay out of the way, you know? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Well, but good. She's super cute. Oh my goodness. She's so cute. She's just a little fuzzball. And <laughs> like most dogs, she she just like sleeps a lot. So she's asleep most of the day. And then yeah. when she's awake, she's chewing on stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We have a bunch of like little toys. So we'll just like get the toys out and then she'll just hop from one toy to the next chewing on them. That's <laughs> and that seems to keep her occupied. Oh, <laughs> I remember. I think the the last puppy that we got, my husband uh, got him for me during my finals week, um, which was in a sense good because it's like, all right, I've got a break from finals. But at the same time, you also have to like then schedule your studying time around the puppy. Like you're saying, it's like, okay, puppy's going to be asleep for an hour. And then I've got a good half hour short burst of energy destroying all of that good stuff and then boom out again okay get back to study it kind of works on a puppy schedule yeah it totally does it (laughs) totally does yeah we're cleaning up you know we're cleaning up the normal uh puppy generated messes around the house from time to time (laughs) but we've we've gotten we've gotten probably more used to the puppy and like her schedule so we're doing better about like preempting the messes and moving her outside so she can do her business outside and not soil our house up too badly, but it's, <laughs> it's all right. It's good. Yeah. Well, today uh, I thought we would get into uh, really startup land. I guess is is the general theme, but much more uh, about like compensation of of people working in startups and uh, smaller companies. Uh, it wouldn't have to be tech companies, but it's quite you know some of the stuff that we're going to talk about is very very common in tech companies. And so I didn't think there would be anybody more fun to do that with than Samuel Dean. Samuel is the owner of Dean Financial Partners in New York. He has an MBA and he focuses on helping millennials who are kind of working in the tech space with financial planning, uh, among other things, things I'm certain. Uh, And he is an expert in this area. So Samuel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brent. It's It's a pleasure to be here. So do yourself the honor to like fill out the record because I probably did not give you proper service for, for <laughs> all of your background and all of your talents. Yeah, sure. So uh, uh, like you like you mentioned, um, I'm a financial advisor and I run an independent investment advisory firm that specializes in financial planning for millennials and technology. Uh, most of our clients are founders or startup employees that are experiencing an, an acquisition or an IPO or some other a liquidity event, and others are professionals with stock options or equity compensation complexity. And uh, sort of because of uh, the, the clients that we work with and sort of our ideal clients, um, some areas of specialization include comprehensive financial planning as well as investment management, um, equity compensation, which entails you know working with stock options, restricted stock, RSUs, employee stock purchase plans, and so forth. And then I would say that the last layer would be tax planning because equity comp has so many uh, tax implications that are involved. Um, that just happens to be, you know, I guess a pain point for the majority of the folks that I work with. And so it made sense for me to sort of um, sort of build that into um, my firm as well. And so those my firm is, you know, a little over two years old right now. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited in, for what we're building. Uh, it, it's, it's truly a pleasure. Yeah, it's such a great niche. How, how did you initially get into this niche or or what was it that prompted you to say like, yeah, this is, you know, this is the area that I want to focus on? Yeah, uh, it, it actually all happened on accident. Um, so after college, I pursued my MBA and began working in finance while I was in business school. And around that time, um, I was dating my, my uh, fiance 
who works in tech, well, she was actually in finance at the time. And, you know, our vision was to start a firm and sort of be like a power couple and, uh, and, and, and build our own wealth management firm working with millennials. And so one day she sort of went to a tech conference because we figured, you know, hey, you know, as, as, as things continue to change, as, as technology continues to disrupt all industries, um, we might as well at least see how it's impacting our industry. And from going to that conference, she completely pivoted and decided to jump into tech. And I, I think uh, she was also looking for a reason to kind of ex escape finance and the, the numbers and, and, and the, I guess what some would view as the boring stuff. And, you know, she started working in tech and, and started uh, sort of gaining certain skill sets and knowledge in, in areas that we felt would be beneficial to a financial services firm. And from her offerings and from her services, from companies that she's worked with, I sort of saw an opportunity in the in, in the tech space from a wealth management lens. And as I mentioned, I was in business school. I was working in finance. I noticed a lot of things in the industry that I felt wouldn't really serve my generation the best. And so um, just from those two experiences, I, uh, I decided to just, hey, you know, why not start a wealth management firm specifically catered for these tech folks who I am relatively close to in terms of needs and pain points and who I can sort of develop uh, my expertise around to serve. And so that's um, sort of where that that all came from. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I, I just, as I was saying, I think it's a great space. And one thing that I keep telling financial advisors that I talk to is that, it, it, and somewhat, it's somewhat coming from the lens of like our industry, because we're in the legal industry, in the legal industry, to a large degree, you're landlocked a bit based on licensing. So, you know, we're we're licensed in Arizona, getting licensed in Colorado. We're kind of landlocked there. We can do work in other states if it's federal work. And basically, if we're doing work in other states outside of that, we're getting other lawyers involved from those states to help us out. Whereas it's, it always sort of seemed to me, absent some state licensure, like in the financial planning industry, that's really not, it's not so much that way. And that for like all those people, like your marketplace is everywhere. And so to be in in a space where you you can service people who are not only in a marketplace that's everywhere, but already a marketplace that is dispersed, such as tech, it just makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And uh, fortunately, you know, because of technology, we're able to, you know, now build firms that are independent, location independent, right? And so- mm -hmm. Even before you know the pandemic happened, I you know my firm had an office in Manhattan, but we worked virtually with the majority of our clients. And like you mentioned, um, we're not necessarily bound to only work with clients in certain states. Yes, there's you know certain uh, um, registration regulations in different states that we can work in and so forth. But I wouldn't necessarily call it a hurdle. Um, and so that gives us flexibility to, you know, for me to be work, living in New York and to be working with clients in California and in, in the DMV and in Texas and in those sorts of places. And again, with the technology that we now have in, in 2020, I'm not sure that you know, it was this feasible to do this 10 to 15 years ago. So I'm really grateful for even just the timing, right? That, that plays a huge role in, in sort of my success today. So I'm, 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 I'm grateful for that. <laughs> So has the has the pandemic slash lockdown been disruptive for you guys, or has has it basically been business as usual? For me, it, it's actually been you know we've onboarded the most clients since the pandemic started than we did you know in the, our first I guess year year and a half of of being a firm, and I'm not necessarily sure that that has to do with the pandemic or if it just has to do with being around for a consistent you know a consistent amount of time and sort of having the consistent messaging and having this niche, I think, has played a huge role in sort of the growth that we've had so far. Um, but I, I would say that the pandemic had a little bit, you know, to do with it because, you know, you see what's the, the economy and the stock market isn't necessarily telling, um, I guess, an easy story to interpret. Um, and quite a few folks are sort of like, well, is this is this something that I can take advantage of? If so, let me reach out to a financial advisor or am I in a good position? You know, uh, am I okay? Uh, and let me reach out to a financial advisor. So I think um, some growth has come from the pandemic based off, off of uh, those two mindsets. Yeah. Interesting. 
Well, if it makes sense to uh, you and Rachel then uh, to kind of get into the nuts and bolts here, I thought maybe we could talk about uh, options. Uh, you mentioned uh, restricted stock. We could talk about restricted stock as well and then talk about, you know, kind of talk, kind of frame the issue of what what that is, what it entails, how how it's kind of taxed and then maybe talk just a little bit about, OK, so in that framework, then how do you do the financial planning or what are the special issues for financial planning? And then maybe maybe kind of follow that up on the back end with just a little bit about the estate planning with those sorts of assets. So if that makes sense to you, I, I say we jump in. Sounds like a plan. All right. We'll sit then uh, set the stage for us then, Samuel, when we're talking about options, what's kind of the general, what are the general categories that people are are faced with and then what are kind of the different rules? Sure. So I'm, I'm not necessarily sure in terms of um, investment experience that your audience has. So before we sort of dive into options, I think it's worth it to talk a, a bit about um, equity compensation and what exactly it is. And yeah. so equity compensation is, is, is from what I'm, from my experience, it's an essential aspect of really attracting and retaining employees, especially the younger employees who are looking to this equity compensation as um, some sort of ownership, even though it represents this much in the company, right? Um, and, you know, stock options in the form of equity grants really allow employees to participate financially and benefit in their employer's growth. And ownership makes all the difference when, you know, you really understand exactly what you own. So some things that I like to encourage clients to do is to really be aware of their company stock position by maintaining a spreadsheet of all of their exercise options and their vested restricted stock, along with employee stock purchase plan shares, um, and any, any holdings of company stock uh, usually, right? And that's important because you, you have to know how much company stock contributes to your net worth, right? The more substantial the component, the more pressing need, you know, there may be to diversify. And so when we're talking about stock options, you know, they really became famous, I would say around the 1990s. It was really then that tech companies started to make broad-based option grants to rank and file employees and not just to executives as a strategy to sort of lure in the top talent. So while since the, the, the 90s, many companies have come to favor other equity grants, such as restricted stock and RSUs, which are essentially just a, a promise for a company to, to give you shares, right? And to this day, stock options will remain a popular form of equity compensation, especially in, in private companies, because essentially it gives you the right to purchase um, a specified number of shares of that company's stock at a fixed price during a particular time frame, and typically you have to work at that company for a specific a specified time frame um, before you're allowed to exercise your right to any of the stock options. And before you even you know before you even exercise those stock options, you should do some financial planning with them. You need to understand the type of options that you have because their tax treatment will, will be different, and so on and so forth. And so, in terms of basics you all sort of have to understand those things before you can even do anything with those options or um, really understand the the infrastructure between options and RSUs and the ESPP and understand the pros and cons and the tax consequences among all those different things um, before you actually make a decision. I think that that's the first and, and most important step. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's So that's one thing that we deal with quite a bit is just trying to understand like what is it that somebody has because in our experience quite frequently I can't say that this is a hundred percent of the time but quite frequently um, clients will have received equity compensation of some variety and the the company may have gone to, through several rounds of issuing equity compensation and the client doesn't fully understand what it is that they have and that's not really their fault. It's the fault of the fact that to understand what they have, you have to read through this 50 page <laughs> tome to and drill down into all the rights and restrictions that apply to that particular grant at that particular moment. And then to track what has changed with respect to that particular grant 
over time because oftentimes there's a vesting period like you're mentioning um, that makes a big difference and so it's like step number one somebody has to figure out what it is that you own which means digging through all these documents you probably threw in your back drawer and forgot about yeah absolutely absolutely so why don't you then uh paint the picture for us you mentioned kind of different types of options so paint the picture in terms of what flavor of options exist in the world yeah so you know before you again before you decide to exercise and, and hold the stock you have to double check whether you have um, incentive stock options which are isos or non-qualified stock options which are nqsos and so with nqsos when you exercise you're going to owe tax at your ordinary income rate on the difference between your exercise price and your market price whether or not you immediately sell the stock right and so stock options sort of offer a no loss proposition if you think about it in the long term because essentially you're allowed to uh, own the stock at a particular price if for some reason the stock is worth more than that then you know you're you're what's called in the money right you're in a in a pretty good position because you're essentially able to buy the stock at a discount however if the stock goes below that exercise price you don't just don't exercise it you don't pay anything to exercise it and you can sort of let it expire where you're you know you don't really experience a loss and so you know one of the most critical issues is deciding when to exercise your options right if if the outlook for your company is good then you may not want to immediately exercise those options historically stocks uh, increase in value over time and so unexercised options have all the upside potential of, of owning the stock out, outright while the downside risk stops at the option price which is essentially what i i just explained and so by waiting, you enjoy all the upside leverage potential without any uh, real cash investment until you exercise. And again, the spread between your exercise price and the rising stock price grows without taxation. Right. And so the only way to really preserve the value of those in the money options is to exercise them before the expiration date and to maximize the profit and the value you have to exercise and sell at the right time which can be a little bit challenging to predict accurately. So you might want to really create a, 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 a full financial plan and set goals for your stock option proceeds, developing an exercise strategy around these goals, right? And so I always say, if you're just if investing for the sake of investing is gambling, right? You should be investing for a particular goal whether that's to early retirement or put your kids through school or your grandkids through school, or even if it's just to build wealth over time, right? There should be some sort of goal that you're investing for. And it's easier to not make certain behavioral mistakes when you have that goal in mind and you have a plan. And so, you know, and, and another thing to sort of worry about is if your stock options represent more than, again, 20 to 25% of your net worth, diversification may be you know more important than than waiting to sell that stock that may be something that you should do immediately to not have um, your financial goals essentially tied to the financial success of a particular company deciding when to exercise options are important um, understanding the tax uh, complications around the different types of options um, there are you know more tax favors when you have ISOs than than NQSOs and you hold them for a longer time and and those sorts of things that we can sort of get into um, AMT and, and and all of those uh, uh, nuances with with ISOs. But in general, it, it really helps to know number one equity vehicle you have. And if you can under if you know that you have options, it's then important to understand the type of options because the tax consequences are different. But in terms of um, an overall option exercise strategy that's something that's extremely important and that needs to be a part of an, a, a comprehensive financial plan i couldn't agree with you more samuel and i think like you're saying the first step that an employee needs to look at when they are given a stock option is exactly what it is which like what brent said when you've got a big old 50 page document it's not the funnest thing to do but that's when you can lean on uh, your group of advisors if you've got um, attorneys or financial planners you know, help reach out to them to see, okay, like you said, what do I have? Do I have an incentive stock option or do I have a non-qualified stock option? And then obviously when you're looking at when do I exercise these options, 
you know, it, are, am I subject to a vesting schedule? You know, do I have to wait for this for a term of years? Is it a cliff vesting schedule when they're all, all the options are going to vest at one time? Or is it more of like a goal-based um, vesting schedule where the employee has to meet certain goals in order for the options to vest? So first, of course, looking at, at all of that, I love the idea of a spreadsheet to be able to track this. I'm just such a spreadsheet person. <laughs> so that just really, really uh, goes to what, what I love. But then it's also like you were saying, you want to look at the tax consequences. And depending on what type of stock option you have, if you have an incentive stock option, um, while those are less common, they are very tax favorable, where incentive stock option is advised. At the moment in his exercise, you do not have that income tax liability. You incur the income tax liability when you later sell those shares that you've acquired. So you have to kind of take that in consideration. Okay, that's when my tax liability is going to be. Also, if you've got you know a capital gain or capital loss as well. Whereas then if you're looking at a non-qualified stock option, typically um, you are going to, of course, we're going to look at the nitty-gritty nitty details of the exact non-qualified stock option in the company stock plan, but typically you would going, you're going to incur that tax liability when you exercise the shares, and then later when you sell the shares, again, that capital gain or capital loss. So you kind of have to take all of those into fact and into um, really take those into consideration when you're trying to determine when is the best time to exercise, and then later on, when is the best time to sell those shares that you've just acquired. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd also like to highlight the not so apparent impact of stock options on cash flow because, you know, stock options don't come without a price, right? When you exercise the right to to buy your employee stock options, you have to pay the exercise price via either a cash exercise or what's called a cashless exercise. And knowing your options uh, may seem easy in theory, but evaluating which strategy to employ can significantly depend on your unique circumstances, right? So not only does the math behind the scenes of a cash or cashless exercise get tricky, but the decision to exercise stock options also have an impact on cash flow and how many shares you will own after the exercise is complete. So your goal essentially is to own as many shares as possible. A cash exercise may be your best choice. Compared to a cash list exercise, a cash exercise is, is, is pretty simple. Um, you purchase shares of the company using you know, the exercise price divided by the number of shares you want to exercise, um, and you send to your company you know, or custodian that amount. And considering this process, a cash exercise is an out-of-pocket cost, right? So funds, you will need to have those funds readily available when you exercise those options. And depending on the number of options exercised the exor- and the exercise price, you can end up with out-of-pocket costs in the tens or even hundreds of, of thousands of dollars. Um, and so needless to say, financial planning is really, really critical here. Um, unfortunately, you know, from what I've seen, many younger employees, particular, particularly Black employees, may not have that type of cash, you know, you know laying around, right? Um and it, it sort of makes that cash exercise somewhat obsolete. So in turn, this often causes employees to be priced out of the stock options and essentially electing for a cashless exercise. And, and personally, I'm not really a fan of, of taking out loans to cover the cost of the shares, which is something that I've, I've also that's uh, I've seen that's pretty popular. Um, but yeah, like all, all of these things are things that you know you you need to be thinking about when you're working for a tech company or you have equity compensation, um, particularly stock options. Yeah, maybe just to flesh that out a little bit. So the idea of the cashless exercise, in case anybody is confused about it, is that the company would credit you your exercise price based on the fair market value of the shares that you're able to exercise into. And so they would reduce the number of shares that they then give you the exercise price that you're not paying them. They are keeping that exercise price in the form of equity in the company, because every time they give you shares of stock in the company, they're diluting the overall ownership value in the company for all the other shareholders. So this is sort of like all the other shareholders saying, instead of you paying us cash, we will just retain the equity value in our hands and then we'll give you the amount that exceeds whatever ex- exercise price you didn't pay us 
hopefully that's somewhat clear to somebody out there in the world, but that's sort of the, the economics of it. And then sometimes what you get on the backside of the exercise for certainly for non-qualified stock stock options, which are really, at least in my experience, really common for um, private companies, is you receive stock, but the stock itself is heavily restricted. And so it's not like you can just transfer it whenever you want. Uh, if the company is not public, you know, it's not like you can just go sell it off. And so then there are additional tax rules that can apply to that stock because of the restrictions that are pl- that are placed on that stock that you also have to take into consideration. Yeah, yeah. Like like you mentioned, a, a cashless exercise is, is frequently the, the default option if you don't have the actual funds to pay for the shares. And primarily with, with this alternative, you're exercising and selling the shares simultaneously. So in doing so, you're covering the cost of exercising the shares with the proceeds from the sale. Um, and instead of paying cash, you'll immediately exercise and sell some of your shares at the same time. And you'll also exercise and hold some of your shares. Um, and under these circumstances, you can sort of design this cashless exercise to call, cover the cost of purchasing your shares, uh, the tax liability you, you incur when exercising your shares, or even both. Um, and again, you know, planning strategies for stock compensation really do begin with a first mindset. And it always keeps in, you know, you always have to keep in mind that your stock option strategy has to integrate with every other part of your financial picture, because as you can see, it touches your investment plan, it touches your tax planning strategy, your cash flow, it it sort of touches different areas of your financial plan, and you have to ensure that they are um, well integrated. Yeah, and to your point, once you exercise the option, now you bear the risk of the market whatever that is, whether that's a public market or a private market, you bear the risk of the market because you're out of pocket some amount of consideration, be that cash or a cashless uh, exercise where you're losing some of the equity that's on the table. And then if the stock goes to zero, you're the one that bears the risk of that. If the stock goes to a billion, you're, you know, you reap the rewards of it. But now you're, once you've exercised it, uh, you're, you're in the position of bearing all the risk. So talk to us a little bit about some of the triggers that can come up with options where either you have to make a decision, a sooner decision about exercising the options, or you may be even forced into exercising the op- the options, especially in like the M&A and IPO space. Yeah, absolutely. When, 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 from what I've seen, you know, when companies go through mergers and acquisitions, you don't, as an employee holding equity compensation, you don't really have much say in what happens to your shares. Again, from my experience, usually you end up getting paid out on whatever shares were acquired from that merger or acquisition. And some things that I usually like to encourage employees, especially um, early stage um, employees or or employees working for early stage startups, rather, is to um, sort of want to negotiate for certain things, right? There are certain acceleration triggers that make sense to have in um, in your contract if your company has plans on going uh, public or or um, going under a, a merger or acquisition. And these are essentially called single trigger and double trigger accelerations. Essentially, you can negotiate for if your company is um, being acquired and you get terminated, which is essentially a double trigger. The first trigger being the company getting acquired and the second trigger being you getting terminated all of you can negotiate for all of your unvested shares to immediately vest. And as you know, the, the term sort of uh, uh, dictates that a single trigger acceleration is you can sort of get those shares immediately vested um, if the company just gets acquired. And the reason being is that there are times where companies hire certain positions for and, and have certain goals for them. So I recently worked with an employee at a startup where she was the VP of people. And her role was to sort of come in and create culture and, and build the HR team to book so that the company can become acquirable, right? So it makes sense for her to sort of negotiate for that because once the company gets acquired, they may not have a need for a VP of people to create culture and 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 grow the team and those sorts of things. And so for her, it made sense to negotiate for that, right? Same with the CFO. They may have a responsibility of bringing a company to a certain financial status to be acquired. And once that happens, they may not have a need for the CFO any longer. And so 
the in terms of m a space as it affects employees and their equity um, negotiating for those sorts of things refresher grants whenever you're fully vested and the company may want to incentivize you to stay stay for a little bit longer they may grant you an additional set of shares with the new vesting schedule and 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 those sorts of things but um, essentially in terms of negotiations and MAs the the acceleration rights are what seem to be pretty popular yeah that's that's what I see too and I think that to, uh, you're exactly on point that it's a it's a matter of if you're aware of this issue ahead of time then when you're having the conversation with the employer you can try and negotiate but if you're not even aware of these issues like you're in a hopeless negotiating position because you don't even know what you're negotiating for so like being aware of those kinds of triggers is really important it can it can make a difference for employees whether you're going to get cashed out or whether you're going to get say stock in an ipo or something else if you're in a in a growing company that's private now but maybe in the future is going to is positioned to sell to private equity or to go into an ipo understanding like what would be my position relative to say new ownership or a new cash event for the company is critical to understand how you can negotiate for your your own compensation yeah and you know everyone wants to walk away from the, the from the negotiation table with the feeling like they've won right you know and even when deciding between salary and equity the key is to win at the right things right after you've done your research after you know you've taken some time to to de- to determine what really matters to you um, you know, like for startups, for example, cash is the most precious resource and founders may welcome individual requests to trade salary for more equity, right? Assuming you're offered a market rate salary and your employer is willing to make some trade-offs, you'll need a framework to help you judge how much equity makes sense, right? And your strategy will need to depend on the stage of the company that you plan on joining. For early stage startups, you'll want to find the company, the company's uh, current valuation as well as the amount of shares outstanding, if you can find out that information. You can easily do that by like dividing you know, the company's valuation by the number of shares outstanding, and that'll get you to the price per share. Um, and the valuation should be like the 409A valuation. And you know, then you can then divide the amount of salary that you're willing to sacrifice by the price per share to help you sort of determine how many stock options you should receive if you want to make that trade-off. Um, for mid-stage startups and pre-IPO startups, the trade-off, you know, really should be based on the number of shares an employee can purchase at the current stock option price. From what I've seen, um, so let's say an employee wanted to forego ten thousand dollars of salary for the opportunity to buy more shares. The current option price was, let's say, two dollars. Let's say the company will likely advocate of granting additional five thousand shares based on the math, right? And so. As we've discussed, you know the the, t- the tax ramifications of equity can be far more complicated than just salary earnings. So it's important to have a real viable strategy in place when you're even talking about things like trading salary for equity, or um, asking for refresher grants, or um, negotiating for rights, and, and those sorts of things. When I think too, it's just a really good point to highlight that like millennials should be negotiating these things. I feel like I've seen in my experience where you know, a millennial when they're with a tech company or just a new startup company that, you know, they, they get this compensation plan, they get the offer from the employer. And, you know, everyone, of course, thinks salary. I, of course, I can negotiate my my salary. But when you see like an equity compensation plan, you see a big old stack of documents that goes with it. You just think, or at least I've seen a lot of people automatically just assume, oh, that is what it is. That's the company documents. It's, you know, I have to just go along with it. There are attorneys just drafted this. This is what I have to get. And it's like, no, 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 no. This is part of your compensation plan. Like you said, if you're going to receive more stock options in lieu of a higher or in lieu of a lower salary, vice versa, this is definitely something that, you know, you should take back to your advisors, truly look at so you can see what those issues are that you really need to be aware about and then go back to the employer and really advocate for yourself and negotiate it. Yeah, one 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 hundred percent. And uh, you know, f- I think f- for the most part, I-, I have seen you know a few companies try to sort of do the right. What I view is doing the right thing by employees who've helped build uh, build the company, right? And so, an example of that is uh, Spotify, for example. So m- many companies have um, 
omnibus stock plans where it, it sort of provides flexibility to make various types of grants to employees. So this means that companies are allowed to grant both types of stock options, ISUs, NQSOs, um, restricted stock, and RSUs, and uh, even like Uber's 2019 equity incentive plan, as well as Spotify's current plan are, are structured in this fashion, where um, they're beneficial for advisory firm, where essentially they have the option to sort of choose which which vehicle they'll accept their equity in. So Spotify, for example, they have out of the money options, in the money options, RSUs and cash. And employees can say, well, I'd like my equity in 100% cash if they, let's say, had a short-term goal that they wanted to fund you know, right away. Or let's say they wanted to sort of have that equity build a little bit more and wanted the out of money options, or even wanted 25% cash and 75% out of money options and so on and so forth. And you know, sort of that really makes it good for, I guess, financial planning centric firms and clients who like to be a little bit more hands-on because it gives both the advisor and the client more control and customization over their equity grants, which is something that you don't really see quite often, right? It's 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 usually you get these amount of shares and you can maybe negotiate the amount of shares that you get, but you, you, you I, at least I haven't really seen many companies say, okay, well, here's these four vehicles and you can choose whichever one in, in 25% ratios. And to me, you know, that that is really empowering employees to learn a little bit more about what they have so they could they can, you know, take advantage of them. Um, and like I said, I think Uber's Uber 20, Uber's 2019 plan was like that. Spotify's current plan is like that. And I hope, you know, more companies sort of uh, follow suit. I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm waiting for our law firm to do that. I <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, I, 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 you, you don't hold your breath. You'll be waiting for a while. Not, not in professional services. That's not the way they come. So let's let's step a little bit then into the kind of tax side of thing. Um, and this is probably something that the CPAs who listen to this podcast will appreciate. And so talk to us a little bit about uh, 83B elections and things that people need to be aware of in order to properly use the 83B election? Sure, uh, so the, the the restricted stock is, is is similar to RSUs. They're like cousins, I like to explain. Um, but a restricted stock is slightly more flexible than RSUs because of the Section 83B election that essentially lets employees choose to be taxed at grant as opposed to vex, vex vesting when the fair market value could have increased. And so there's also risk that the stock price may not appreciate and could even drop by the vesting date, which is uh, something you should be you should think about. But essentially what it is that let's say, you know, you're an employee at Spotify, you get a grant of restricted stock um, at a certain price at grant. Um, usually, if you don't um, do the Section 83B, you will get taxed on that value. Um, whenever the shares vest. So let's say at grant it's $100 and at vesting it's $300, you will be taxed $300 during the during the year that it is vest, that, that, that the shares vest. If you do an early uh, exercise, which is a, a section 83B election, essentially, you will be taxed on the $100 value rather than the $300 value. So essentially that's, you'd be paying less taxes for the same share. So that makes it a little bit beneficial. However, if you made the 83B election at grant and the stock price fell at vesting, um, you sort of run into a little bit of trouble there. Um, and so essentially, you know, a loss after an 83B election could result in a triple hit, right? You pay taxes earlier than you had to. Your tax was based on the higher stock price. And your recovery is sort of treated as a, as, as a capital loss, and you may have already had you know substantial capital losses preventing you from using the new loss in the year of the sale. And so I'm a fan of uh, really controlling things that I can, um, especially income taxation. And so this strategy can be an added benefit to the overall financial plan, but you know there are certain things that sort of have to go um, well for you to, to, to really benefit from an 83B election. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, it's uh, important to point out when an employee makes an 83B election, they don't have a lot of time 
to right. figure out whether or not they want to do it. So it's it's something that you really need to sit down right away with your planners, with your team of advisors to determine whether or not you're going to be making that election. To make the 83B election, you have to file the election with the IRS within 30 days. So really short amount of time. And so this, we see this a lot in the estate planning perspective where say it's the stock options are in a trust, family trust, you have a trustee who's doing it. Well, that trustee, hopefully they have that lovely spreadsheet we were talking about earlier and they are tracking everything. Um, but they have these dates in mind so that they don't accidentally miss this 30-day deadline and then miss entirely making the 83B election. And then at that point, like you said, Samuel, they're then just kind of forced to um, realizing the income taxation when the options actually best. Yeah, and there's a so there's a weird kind of quality to it, right? Because if you if you make the 83B election. Uh, let's say it was restricted stock. So you made the 83B election, stock was issued to you at $100 a share. You pay ordinary income taxes on the $100 a share. If in the future it appreciates to $300 a share, the $200 difference is a capital gain to you. In addition, this kind of skips into a bit of the next uh, topic about estate planning. If you then die owning those shares, because now it's a capital asset, you get a brand new tax basis at death equal to the 300, not not the 100. Whereas if you hadn't made the 83B election and the stock then had not vested before you died, what you own is an item that is an ordinary income item. It's called income in respect of a decedent if you die owning it, meaning your beneficiaries, you know, children, spouse, etc., they pick that up as ordinary income. They don't pick it up as a capital gain item. Whereas if you if you make the 83B election and it goes up in value, I mean, if it goes down in value, it'd be a capital item too, but it'd be a capital loss to your point, Samuel. But you know, if it had gone up in value, then you also get a brand new tax basis at death. So some somewhat the kind of like life circumstance of the employee makes a big difference. And then just to flesh out what you were saying about the capital losses in case um, anybody is wondering. So if you take a capital loss and it's a, a quote unquote long term capital loss, you can only offset that against $3,000 of ordinary income taxes like your salary or long term capital gains. So sometimes uh, if you don't have a lot of capital gains to offset these capital losses, you can be sitting on capital losses and chipping away at them in $3,000 a year increments, which means you'll never get rid of them. So it's it can be a bad situation where it's like, yeah, you got a tax benefit. You cannot use it. You know, congratulations. <laughs> so let's talk a bit then about uh, the estate planning piece. And uh, I want to talk about it kind of from two different perspectives. One is what we're most concerned about, at least Rachel and I, when we're doing the planning, which is controlling things uh, and adequately controlling what somebody owns at every critical events in their life, which is usually disability or death, and then dealing with like who's going to get these things when you die. So you want to you want to chime in on that, Samuel? Yeah, I mean, I'll be I'll be really honest with you, man. I uh, estate planning is something that's really difficult to get a lot of my clients to do, particularly because a lot of them are relatively young. Like I, I think my my oldest client is probably 40. And so I think when it as it pertains to equity compensation, a lot of them aren't quite there yet. It's like they're they're first time wealth builders in their family. A lot of them are first time college graduates, so it, it's more of a what am I supposed to do with all of this? How, where am I supposed to allocate all of this? How can I make sure that I don't lose any of this? And you know, how can we again use this to accomplish our goals? Right? It's can I use this to put my kids through school? Can I use this to buy a home? Can I use or any way that I could sort of help the next generation or even myself if I'm pretty young. Um, it hasn't really gotten a lot around um, estate planning. I mean, we do make sure that, you know, it's covered and that it passes down to the right person if in a worst case scenario, something happens. Um, but in terms of uh, a pain points, my biggest pain point is just getting them to, to, to get an estate plan done to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hear you. <laughs> we know the struggle. Uh, yeah, so we, we get it. 
Yeah, well, let me let me then flesh it out just a little bit. So very commonly in most places, I, I can't speak to every single jurisdiction, but mo in most places, at least in the United States, very typical estate plan is you would you, the employee who has say options or restricted stock, et cetera, uh, you would form your own revocable trust. And then you would be the beneficiary while you're alive. Maybe you and your spouse together, depending on the state that you're in. Uh, you may have a joint trust or you might both have your own trust, but you'd be your own trustees. The trustee is the person who has the legal authority to manage everything that's inside of that trust wrapper. With the exception of incentive stock options, most of the time, these sorts of equity compensation vehicles, be they restricted stock or um, non-qualified stock options, as long as you get adequate consents from your employer, you can move that asset into a revocable trust without violating the rules of your employer. And then your trustee can manage that asset. So let's, so let me just give you an example. So let's say you're a 40 year old employee at a company. The company was very nice. They issued you options or restricted stock. You moved those into your revocable trust. You named yourself as the trustee. But then you said, when I can't do it, I want my spouse to be the trustee. Then you get hit by a car and you're in a coma. Your spouse steps into your shoes as the trustee and can exercise those options. So if you have an event coming up, we're like, okay, now we need to exercise the options, but you are in a coma, who's going to exercise the option? That's the event that, you know, for me professionally, that's the event that makes me nervous. I'd never want that event to happen. And we don't have the person that, you know, you picked to make that decision ready to go so they can make that decision for you. And then of course, if you die, who's gonna get this when you die? So very often in the plan documents that the employee or the employer creates, there, there may be restrictions on who can own the stock. Um, so you can't just give the stock to anybody in the world. And very often in the plan documents, you have to get consent from the employer, which I was trying to describe. You have to get the employer's consent or really the entity uh, has to consent to transfers. Otherwise, the transfer will be void at best, uh, and at worst, you'll lose it. You could lose the uh, you could lose the equity that you thought you had because you violated the rules. So you have to be really careful about doing the transfer into the trust. But as long as you check all the boxes, you get it into your revocable trust. Now the person who's trustee can always step into your shoes, and you don't have you know talk about pain points. Like you don't have a pain point where something needs to be done with those assets, but you're incapable of doing it for some reason. And usually it's a reason that's beyond your control. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's actually a pretty, uh, a pretty good uh, example there that I didn't necessarily give, give a lot of thought to when you originally asked that question. I think in terms of, of I think in, the way I guess I prefer to do planning, and I think it's easier to do it when, you, when you're working with younger professionals, is let's make sure that we have enough liquidity and we have our emergency fund and we have everything set so that we're not, we, anytime we're hit with an emergency or a surprise, we're not put in a position to where we're forced to make an investment decision to have the proceeds to do the things that we need to do. But in your example just now, I think that was spot on in terms of at least having someone that can control the assets in the event that you're incapable of doing so, I think that at the very least, that should at least be done to at least pr protect yourself in the event of something happening. Um, I, I really like that strategy. Well, it's very kind of you to say. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's uh, from an estate planning perspective, that control element is the element that I spend the most time fretting about for clients where like, you know, trying to think through like, is there a gap here where we lose control? And really what that usually translates into is you lose control in the sense that now somebody probably needs to go to a court to ask for permission to be the person in control. And it's nothing against the courts. It's just a lot easier to not involve the court in that decision making process. So to the extent that we can, uh, that's what we're trying to do. Hopefully none of my judge friends are mad at me for saying that, but that's, uh, <laughs> I think they would agree that most of those sorts of decisions, they would prefer to be left outside of the courtroom too. When I think too, it's, you know, when we're speaking, especially to millennials about this issue, you know, when, when Brent and I talk to a client about, you know, making sure that you have these controls and this is why, you know, we, we really advocate for creating a revocable trust for clients for this incapacity protection. 
a lot of clients, they think, oh, incapacity, right? Oh, that's when I'm older, right? That's like Alzheimer's, things like that, which absolutely it does include that. But in like just how Brent said in his example, you walk outside the building and unfortunately you're hit by a bus. Now you're in a coma or, you know, with very what's going on right now in the world with the pandemic, you saw a lot of people go on ventilators. You're in the hospital. You cannot make decisions for yourself anymore. And so you want someone, you know, particularly someone who would know your wishes, who knows your desires, who you personally trust, you would want someone else to be able to step into your shoes and be able to control your assets. Just like you said, Samuel, this is for a lot of millennials. If you're the wealth builder, you just created this. This is your baby. So let's protect this and make sure that it's going to be treated the way you want it to and everything's done exactly how you want it to. Well, there's uh, there are many, many levels we could dig into on this if we had time. I guess we're going to have to save that for uh, another opportunity. But I, I cannot thank you enough, Samuel, for joining us. Where can people find you should they want to reach out to you? Of course. Thank you so much. It, it, it's certainly been a pleasure. Um, anyone can find me. Uh, my website is www.deanfinancial.com. Uh, my name on all social media platforms is Samuel S. Dean, D-E-A-N-E. And uh, my newsletter is techmoney.deanfinancial.com, where I talk all things related to equity compensation, um, working in the startups, stock market, the economy, everything you need to know about money. Nerdy stuff. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan. All right. Very good. Well, hopefully uh, anybody listening who wants to find you they can find you through those uh through those means and and again thank you so much it's been a lot of fun all righty thank you if you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast please subscribe and follow us on social at wealth and law and follow our blog wealthandlaw.com see you there